your spirit through us, cutting through the rock, cutting through the debris, the rubble, cutting through our selfishness. Lord, we can only be a channel as that current flows constantly through us, keeping it clear. May we be channels, channels brought about by your love, your compassion, your spirit working through us every day, every hour. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we just had a, an anniversary, which I am sure no one celebrated. I only came upon it quite by accident. Three weeks ago, Pride and Prejudice, a romantic novel by Jane Austen, which many of you have heard of, was published anonymously in, uh, in three volumes in 1813. And it's a classic of English literature, and it centers around the developing relationship between Elizabeth Bennet and Fitzwilliam Darcy. Uh, Fitzwilliam was a wealthy, uh, aristocratic landowner. The first edition sold out, and it's been in print ever since. It's it's an amazing uh, thing. But if it's a love story, it, why the title Pride and Prejudice? without playing a guessing game, simply put, the pride of rank and fortune and the prejudice against Elizabeth's family, social inferiority is what held Darcy aloof. But you'd be mistaken if you thought that was the only reason it had its name. Uh, The other reason is that Elizabeth's pride in her own self-respect and her prejudice against uh, Darcy's snobbery held her just as equally aloof as him. Interestingly, both of them were controlled by pride and prejudice. Now, Jane Austen, you may not know, uh, her father was a pastor. Uh, She herself was a uh, believer. Uh, Dr. Rachel Dodge wrote a book titled Praying with Jane Austen, a devotional, some of the prayers that Jane Uh, wrote, were worthy of reflection and contemplation even uh, for us today. Her faith was evident in her uh, books. One of the elements that we see with pride and prejudice in that sense is she was very familiar with the seven uh, deadly sins. These these words appear uh, more than uh, 200 times in her uh, writings. Now, one little note about Prejudice. Prejudice in her day didn't mean exactly, it, 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 it came close, but it didn't mean exactly what it uh, means uh, today. It, it was more toward the individual. It was more uh, in, like a first impression. In fact, that was the original title of her book, was called First Impressions. And, and the point that she was trying to make was, was how hard it is to overcome a first impression because our pride will generally not allow our prejudice uh, to come to a new understanding uh, without something extraordinary. Now, this happened in my own life. 
It happened up at Denali Bible Chapel. I don't remember if it was up in that's Fairbanks, Alaska. I don't remember if it was 1989 or 1990. But we were one of the churches who brought uh, singer-songwriter Rich Mullins uh, to sing in a one-night concert. And I was familiar with many of his songs. I, I loved his music, and I looked so forward to uh, meeting him. And as the pastor of one of the sponsoring churches, uh, I, I did. I, I met with him personally. And my initial impression, frankly, was that he was an odd duck. Uh, and, and later, I told Barb before the concert, I said, Honey, I, I really have no idea how this is going to go. And, uh, but when he took the stage and he told his story and he sang his music, I was genuinely ushered before the Lord in a, a profound way. And I rebuked myself for having such a first impression uh, and, and, and yet how God was able to overcome that, that he would save uh, someone like me and someone like Rich, whose musical genius uh, lives on. After he died in 1997, I, I regretted never writing him and telling him how much that concert meant to me and how much it humbled me. I see pride and I see prejudice in my own life. Uh, it's not just a book. It's, she was writing about something that impacts all of us. And we see pride and prejudice in our text today. Uh, attitudes uh, like mine toward Rich that after a, a turn of events in the life of Nathaniel, uh, we find we're just... His notions were absolutely false. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1, verses 43 through 49. It's there that we uh, read about this continuing uh, work of the Lord by collecting his uh, disciples. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Now, Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of of Israel. Now, Philip and Nathaniel, as well as uh, Simon, now uh, Peter, and certainly John, who is writing this, but who's mostly unnamed in the text, they knew the scripture. They were familiar with the law and the prophets. They knew that they were looking for the Messiah, that the Messiah would come from the line of David. They knew that he would be born in Bethlehem. They knew he would be 
born of a virgin, that he would have spent time in Egypt. They knew all the requirements, so they knew the time was soon. I mean, you had all these people following John because he was the one proclaiming that he was preparing the way of the Lord. Everyone was excited about this. But there was a glitch. And the glitch was Nazareth. Nazareth was small and considered by its neighboring towns, hmm, to include Bethsaida thought this, that it was uneducated, it was unchanged, meaning backwards, and that it was unrefined. And so when Philip told Nathanael that Jesus was from Nazareth, Nathanael couldn't disguise his contempt. It was a total shock to him. Now, the only reason I believe that Nathaniel kept going with, with Philip was no longer because he actually hoped to find the Messiah. Yeah, he had already decided, based on where he was from, that he was not the Messiah. In Nathaniel's mind, anyone raised in Nazareth couldn't possibly be the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And he was quick to say so. While I was at Boston University, we were uh, discussing what I found to be an incredibly complex uh, topic. It was, uh, for me, it was was called reification. And uh, that is the notion that objects are turned into subjects, and subjects are turned into objects, and results in subjects being rendered passive, and blah, blah. And more or less speaking to myself, I said... I don't get this at all. And one of my classmates uh, who was sitting next to me patronizingly put his hand on my uh, shoulder and he said, don't worry, Uh, we're patient with you. We know you're in the military. Now that comment really stung because of the pride and the prejudice, which he didn't realize at all, that was behind it. I don't need to explain what all that was. If you've experienced it, I don't need to. If you haven't experienced it, I, I can't anyway. So, uh, needless to say, it hurt. And Jesus knew this. This is not something that Jesus didn't know. Jesus knew exactly how Nathaniel thought about Nazareth. And this is what made Jesus first words to Nathaniel, so gracious and loving, instead of saying, behold the idiot with zero tact, which is what I might have said, Jesus said that Nathaniel was without deceit. Now this too took Nathaniel entirely off guard. Poor Nathaniel's brain was, he was getting whiplash. Uh, This Philip's come and see, which he got from Jesus' come and see strategy, proved effective because Philip's job was what? Bring this person to Jesus. Let Jesus do the convincing. Listen, that's our role as well. When we bring someone, just bring them to the Lord. The Lord will do the convincing and we leave it alone at that. Now, there's a few things I do want to say, though, about prejudice here. Uh, We know from the Bible, uh, and I'll go Old Testament and New Testament, Old Testament first, that prejudice is wrong in Leviticus 19.33. And the amazing thing is, is that even though the Lord spoke directly to this, Israel never obeyed. 
they, they never did. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. When was the last time you read Leviticus 19? It's an amazing thing. Love them as yourself, for you were once foreigners in Egypt. In other words, this goes this actually goes to the New Testament. Jesus probably had this in his mind. The word of God steeped in this when he's asked, who's my neighbor? The neighbor is the foreigner among us. Who's my neighbor? It's not just the person living next door. We are to treat people the way we would be treated. Or more specifically, in this case, the way God would uh, treat us. Before we were all foreigners once upon a time. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. Other verses in Exodus say the same thing. And when we look in the New Testament, it's just as precise, if not more cutting. Jesus was asked this question about loving uh, your neighbor. And the story Jesus tells is about someone from a different culture, a different religious background, from a separate space, such that the Jews of that day wouldn't even go through it. They would go all the way down to the Jordan Valley and go south and then back up to Jerusalem or all the way uh, down to the Jordan Valley and north and then then back up in order to avoid Samaria. And Jesus told us this story about the Good Samaritan. One of the starkest uh, verses in all uh, uh, Scripture in John 4, 9, which we'll be looking at, Uh, It's sometime in the future for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Half breeds, unclean, irredeemables. I mean, we have to look at at some distance here in order to, to begin to see this kind of level of animosity. I mean, perhaps we go back to the the early 90s with the Serbs and the Muslims in Bosnia. Perhaps we go to Northern Ireland with the Catholics and the Protestants in the 60s. Ezra wrote that the Samaritans... Ezra! You know, the the prophet? He wrote that the Samaritans came to him and offered help in rebuilding the temple. And Ezra said, no way. Get out. You are not welcome here. It's an amazing thing. In the Maccabean Wars in 108 BC, the Jews actually destroyed the Samaritan temple and pillaged the territory. And around the time of Jesus' birth, a band of Samaritans brought bags of dead men's bones and spread them around the temple grounds, even in the sanctuary. You know what? 2,000 years of Christian history have ripped out the radical nature of what Jesus Christ said when he spoke to the woman at the well, when he talked about the good Samaritan. We have no idea. We even have clubs, the good Samaritan. You know, you, you put it on the back of your camper. Not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they were as apt to spit on the ground. 
they literally would go out of their way to not have any dealings with them. And so without that background, 2,000 years of Christian history have, have washed away how radical a statement it was that Jesus made. And God wants us to love without prejudice. Period. He wants us to accept without regard. We looked at that word this morning. We're accepted in Him. We are to accept others regardless of where someone was born or raised or their accent or their social status. Nathaniel used a litmus test and he was wrong and Jesus didn't pass. Now there's a prejudice in our society today against Jesus himself. And there, there are lots of reasons uh, for this, but it seems to have gotten worse in the past couple of decades, I think primarily because of the Internet and social media and those voices get very loud and, and they're out there. And, you know, these people get caught in these echo chambers where all they hear is what they say. And it's something where they don't hear any other opinions. They don't hear an honest assessment of Jesus. That's one of the reasons... I'm, I'm optimistic about this uh, advertising campaign. He, he gets us. R- recently, I've been noticing this. Perhaps you have too. A series of commercials on TV produced by this organization. He gets us. Well, I don't know where the organization will ultimately go from a believer's perspective. I'm cautiously optimistic that they're on the right track. They've certainly tapped into cultural issues and how Jesus might uh, relate to them. I mean, last week's uh, Super Bowl, uh, they showed some of their uh, commercials, and it got the critics howling. Ooh, howling. One suggested that he gets us was appropriating Jesus to endorse fascism. Uh, Apparently, the reason for this is that the, the primary stakeholder, and he gets us, is the man who started Hobby Lobby, who happens to be right to life. And if you're right to life, by some people's estimation, you're a fascist. I don't know what the two have to do with each other, but I don't, I'm not the one making the connections, just reporting them. Another one howled, howled, screeching. Jesus would say uh, that the money spent on the commercials would have better been spent on the poor. Wait a minute. We've heard that somewhere before. And then still others shrieked that it wasn't Jesus-centric enough. Wow, okay, so when everybody's shrieking and hollering, you've got my attention. I'm like, okay, this is good. I mean, it's amazing, though. None of these uh, people who uh, lost their minds lost their minds on anything else. Just Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus lives rent-free in everyone's head out there, whether they realize it or not. Otherwise, you wouldn't, why would you have such a reaction to Jesus if Jesus didn't mean anything? Anyway, I think the outrage is very selective. But in our modern society, listen how this works. In our modern society, it's perfectly okay to make a movie or write a book about Jesus having an affair with Mary Magdalene or marrying her and having babies, but it's not okay to 
portray him as someone who loves the poor. You know, boom. Suddenly you're a, you're a fascist. Let his love be shown to the masses and smack, you know. People who have never thought about Jesus at all suddenly know exactly what he would be thinking right now. I just find that absurd. Yet aside from that, which I, I am picking a little bit, uh, there are others, though. There are others' hearts who have been wounded, perhaps by the church itself. Perhaps someone in the church, perhaps some misfortune in their life, and uh, they may be having some anger towards God for the misfortune. What do we do? How, do, how does this work? I think first we, we've got to begin to recognize who Jesus is and what it is that he brings to us. Whether you initially sided with uh, Darcy or Elizabeth, all of you sided with Elizabeth, right? Anyway, in, in the book, uh, both of them were equally consumed with pride and prejudice. Pilgrim's Progress was certainly on her mind. That was a popular book in her day. And what he wrote was uh, that he uh, that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble shall have God to guide him. And you have something here in the life of Nathaniel that's just extraordinary. He's walking, he's excited. I'm going to meet the Messiah. The Messiah's from Nazareth. Oh, what a waste this is. But something happened. Something that Nathaniel did not expect. Jesus answered him when he asked that question, How do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. I think something of this reflects the depth of our our heart and that is to be known we want to be known we want to be known fully and we want to be loved completely even in that knowing and everyone longs to be loved and appreciated most of us have never really felt that certainly on an ongoing basis we have glimpses of it as the love of God is, is shed upon us. We, we feel it at a smaller level when someone appreciates us for, for who we are, not necessarily for what we've done uh, and certainly not what we've done for them, but, but for who we are as a person. And Nathaniel felt something when Jesus, at that point a total stranger, identified him as someone who was without deceit under the fig tree, it was immediately evident that Nathaniel knew that Jesus knew his nature, his motives, even his physical location. And, and here in uh, Nathaniel, we, we find one in whom there's no deceit, and he says, how do you know me? This is a scary thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary thing. I can say that from a counseling perspective. I want you to know me, but at the same time, I don't. And we're all that way. Go away, come close. Come here, go away. It, it's the way we operate, because why? 
because at our level of trust, we've all been hurt to the point where to truly fully invest ourselves in another being, even the God of the universe, is tricky business because it's scary being known. When I first went to Dallas Seminary, I was impressed with everything about the school, especially the way they treated uh, their, their students. On my first day of class uh, with Dr. Zook, first day, first class, we were answering questions, and I raised my hand, and Dr. Zook said, what's on your mind, John? Now, the first thing I thought was, uh, how do you know my name? And then I thought, how do you know my name? It's like, okay, am I on some list somewhere? Am I already in trouble? What have I done, you know? So you have this, wow, this guy knows my name. We've never met. Why? Because in that day, and maybe still today, I don't know, they take all the student pictures, they memorize everyone's name before they ever come to class. Knowing someone's name is that significant. On the other hand, you know, it's like, okay, how do you know my name? So we have this scary and gratifying at the same time. Jesus answers that question, I saw you. Uh, you know, I just to flip over to a kind of a devotional thought for just a moment. This is one of the most critical things in the Bible. We see this in the Old Testament. The God who sees. God sees you. He sees you in your fullness, in the good and the bad, and He loves you. Remember, I've spoken of respect before. One of my favorite words ever, re meaning more at, to do again. Spec meaning to see, like spectator, spectacles. That is, when you respect somebody, you look again. You see them. To disrespect somebody means that you... Render them invisible. They, what they say, who they are, does not count to you. That's disrespect. This is such a beautiful encounter with Jesus. You are not insignificant. Everything, in fact, is important. And the same is true with us. We are not insignificant to him. We are important. And it's not the kind of superficial knowing that many of us have when we say, hey, how you doing? What's up? Yeah, it's good. And we go on our way. God sees everything about us as clearly as day. He sees your pride. He sees your prejudice and mine as well. But he also sees the tears that you shed. Sometimes in the night, quietly, because you don't want to wake anyone. He knows your challenges. He knows what you are going through every moment of every day. And he cares about that. It matters to him. He respects you because he's looking at your life through the life and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on your behalf. You are Nathaniel that he saw under the fig tree. He knew you before you knew him. Yet in that knowing, he cannot love you more and he will not love you less.
Everything about you matters. When Nathaniel gets this, he declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What in the world just happened there? He went from nothing good can come from Nazareth to, in a nanosecond, Rabbi, you're the son of God and the king of Israel. Now, that's what I call a a paradigm shift. That is a a basic change in the the framework of assumptions and principles and and values from which you operate, and it it just shifted. It's something that you operate from, uh, in, in terms of your thinking and your behavior in an uncritical fashion because you've already accepted it to be the way it is. This is already true. And now he switches. Nothing good can come from Nazareth to Rabbi, you are the son of God and the king of Israel. What was Nathaniel doing that would allow him to immediately acknowledge Jesus as Messiah? We'll see part of this uh, next week. But uh, he was likely meditating on the story of Jacob's dream about the angels going up and down the ladder in Genesis uh, 28. But he was also seeking information uh, from God about the coming Messiah. And uh, there's evidence for those two points. And we'll talk more about that next week. But one other little tiny point which I, perhaps it has no significance, but it's just the kind of thing that I notice. I mean, how many fig trees are in Israel? There's a lot of, there's a lot of fig trees in Israel. A lot of them. And, and, and Jesus doesn't say, uh, when he said, I saw you, he, he didn't say, I saw you under a fig tree. He said, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, there's something about that tree that struck Nathaniel to the core and to the heart because it was a specific tree. Now, we don't know. We'll have to ask Nathaniel in glory, what was that? But maybe that was the place where he begged God to reveal himself to him. We don't know. Maybe that was the place where he confessed his sin. Maybe that was the place where he begged God to open his eyes. Perhaps Nathaniel's doubts were more than just Jesus being from Nazareth. We don't know. And I don't speculate. But I do know when you see the tree, there's something about that tree that's more. What that more is, I, I don't know. But maybe it was that he cried out, As he sat there, Lord, do you see me under this tree? Because there was something about him being under that tree that Jesus' words, I saw you under the tree that penetrated his heart, that changed his mind about everything. I'm reminded of Thomas when he said, my Lord and my God. And as we'll see next week, his immediate response really thrilled Jesus. Jesus says some things that are extraordinary after this. So how do we know that it's real? Come and see a changed life. Come and see that Jesus has the power to speak into your life 
today and that he can say things to you that no one else knows but that you will fully understand. Come and see how excellent he is. Come and see how wonderful and magnificent he is. Come and see and he will take your doubts and lay them down. I believe that's at a minimum what's in part of when he says, take on my burden. Take on my burden because it's like your burden that you carry with the sins in your life, set them down. Get rid of the, the pride that may be there. Harry Ironside, who pastored Moody Church for 20 years, wrote a little bit about pride in, in this regard. And he said, uh, a young minister had been called to pastor a, his first church. He was just out of seminary, very confident, graduated with honors. Everybody felt he was going to be the next Henry Ward Beecher. You may have to look him up. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the people were watching as he entered the pulpit, and he strode up uh, with a great um, air of, of of confidence. And he read the text, uh, and then his whole sermon <laughs> went from his mind; it was just gone. So he thought, "Okay, uh, when you forget something, you go back to the last thing that you were uh, thinking about, and and maybe it will come back." So he read the text a second time. And uh, nothing. And so he read the text a third time and uh, nothing. And so he says, I'm, I'm sorry I can't uh, speak to you this morning. Which is, oh, by the way, why I use notes. <laughs> notes are not a sin. <laughs> They're little reminders. Little reminders of, of what I uh, want to say. So he walked down with uh, his head down and, and feeling uh, feeling uh, badly. And uh, one of the elders of the church came up to him and said, uh, Laddie, if you had gone up the way you came down, you might have gone down the way you came up. <laughs> the Lord is speaking to you this morning. I don't know what he's saying. I don't know if he's telling you that you're a person of integrity and in whom there's no guile. I don't know. But immediately after that, the Lord is going to do something else because when he does that, what he's doing, he's saying, I know you. And then he's going to prove that he knows you because he's going to go to something in your life where he says, and I know this. And when you know that he knows those two things and you hear how he's speaking into your character, he's wanting you to know that you are significant to him. That his sacrifice on the cross was for you. To give you life. To give you abundant life. To give you eternal life. Father, we, we rebuke our own pride and our own prejudice. Uh, Lord, we rebuke our lack of awareness that we have those two things. Uh, we pray that you would speak into us that which would allow us to truly be a channel for your blessing. That which would allow us to be in a relationship with you where we go from cynicism 
and disbelief as Nathaniel was experiencing to praise and worship. And your spirit is the only thing that can make that kind of change. So move through us and allow us to get out of the way so that you can move. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.